Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today, we're going to be talking about the 2019 film Joker, written and directed and produced by Todd Phillips and starring Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck and the Joker, Robert De Niro as talk show host Murray Franklin, Zazie Beetz as Sophie Dumond, uh, Arthur's love interest, and Frances Conroy as Penny Fleck, Arthur's mother. I have personally noticed that fans are divided about this film as to whether they like it or not. But whichever way you feel about it, dear listener, we're, we're going to break this film down good and proper and hopefully leave you with something new to think about at least. So without further ado, Steve, why don't you get us started? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, from what I gather, uh, Todd Phillips can see Joker in 2016, and he wrote the script with uh, Silver throughout 2017. Uh, the two were inspired by 1970s character studies in the films of Martin Scorsese, uh, particularly Cat, Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. Um, who was originally attached to the project as a producer. Um, the, the film loosely adapts plot elements from Batman the Killing Joke, um, but, but Phillips and Silver otherwise did not look to specific comics for inspiration. Now, I have to be honest and say that definitely shows. Um, I don't think that they were interested in telling a Joker story, at least not in the sense that they wanted to do a comic book movie. Um, I can more get the sense that Todd Phillips wanted to tell the story of how a mentally ill person degenerates into a psychopathic criminal and they attached the Joker name to it because they felt it would get more attention that way. Even the way Phillips uh, talks about the film gives the impression that he wanted to do an art house style film, but dressed it up in a mainstream commercial property. Um, while that's not an approach I particularly like in most cases, I think it worked for this particular film. It helped that they firmly established that they were setting this up as an alternate universe and a take that wasn't connected to other DC films. So it comes across as an experimental film uh, that operates on its own merit. You know, actually, you're right about that. Uh, Todd Phillips himself said that he never really thought about doing a comic book movie. For him, it was more about doing a character study, uh, you know, about someone that no one really knew much about. So he he really came at it from that angle, uh, you know, rather than wanting to do a Joker movie. Uh, ultimately, it was about how to do a great character study and get people to want to watch it. Uh, the answer was, like you said, to make it about the Joker. When, when it comes to Phillips' vision for the film, though, he, he said that he just loves bad guys. It's fun to ask why he's like that. And that is ultimately uh, what the goal of the movie is. It's not meant as some gigantic statement on the world today. You know, there, there's stuff thematically in there. But really, it's about what makes Arthur or Joker the way that they are. Uh, you know, with, with Joker, Phillips just liked the Joker's sense of mayhem and chaos. It sure sounds that way. According to another producer on the film, uh, Bradley Cooper, uh, Todd Phillips called him up and said, hey, I got this idea for this sort of alternate version of DC. And the first one is this origin story of Joker. 
And Cooper thought that was very bold. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix said that Todd has a, a very unique way of looking at things, and nobody could have made this movie but Todd, unquote. Um, Warner Brothers was very loose with it, according to Phillips, who uh, pitched it to them as an idea first in 2016. And they were like, okay, go explore. And he met with some people at DC, and then he told them about a year. Um, but uh, there were no rules or mandates given to them about what they could or could not do. So they really departed from a lot of the comics and made up a new character named Arthur Fleck. And while comics fans didn't like that Phillips and Silver didn't drop Arthur into a vat of acid to make his skin white, that just wasn't the movie they were making. They wanted to make something that felt grounded in reality. Wow. I'm I'm actually kind of surprised that DC didn't give them, I mean, at least some specifics or guidelines. But, I mean, I guess if you pitch it as an Elseworlds, Elseworlds story, uh, then anything can go. <laughs> I did like that it felt very grounded in research, particularly when it comes to fleshing out Arthur Fleck. Uh, true, and I think that's what sells the film. Um, while I think that the whole grounded approach has been overdone with Batman at this point, that was the right approach with this specific film. Because, again, Joker is not really a comic book movie. It's a Scorsese-style art film that explores the mental deterioration of Arthur Fleck as he turns gradually into a psycho clown. And the world he inhabits has to re represent this gritty, hard reality that Arthur is attempting to escape from. Because that sense of reality is ultimately what destroys him. And so you have to see it in this very grounded perspective. Um, while I love uh, me some bizarre things like crocodile monsters and mad scientists with freeze guns, and I'm the first person who'd line up to see those things in a Batman film, that really can't be what this movie is. It would completely kill the tone they're aiming for. So this was the right decision for the movie they were making, in my view. Uh, well said, Steve. I, I have to agree with all of that. The city, flex environment, the people, it all plays a part in Arthur's journey. But speaking of Arthur, let's switch gears here to the actor that played him. I, I believe you had some stuff to say about Joaquin Phoenix and how he was hired in the first place, didn't you, Steve? Sure, uh, let's do it. Um, Joaquin Phoenix was Todd Phillips's first and only choice for Arthur Flat. Phillips, in fact, wrote the movie for Phoenix and had no one else in mind. Uh, when he was writing the movie, Phillips was envisioning uh, Joaquin Phoenix the whole time because it helped to fuel the creative process that he had. He picked Phoenix because he's doing his own thing. As Phillips saw it, uh, Phoenix is playing jazz while everybody else is doing math. He wanted an actor who could handle the offbeat type of thinking that was required of the role, and, and Phoenix did that to perfection, it must be said. Now, um, Joaquin Phoenix himself said that he looked for a director with a singular vision and a unique take on the material, and that was clear in Todd's script that he had a real sense of what the character of Arthur was going through. Um, for his part, Phillips felt things in a way that Phoenix hadn't expected. Uh, both Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix knew that this was going to be a big film and not some small art house production. Um, there were expectations they struggled to manage with this film because of that character. Uh, the Joker has been done so many different times over the years that have been good in their own way. But uh, Phillips wanted to turn that fear into adrenaline and push his way through. Uh, Phoenix had reservations about having never worked with Phillips and several other things as well. And they spent several months talking about these issues before Phoenix even agreed to do it. But after uh, all that, he was fully on board with it. You know, I have to say, it, it, as an actor, I would be concerned, very concerned with playing the Joker and, and, and trying to bring something new to the table. Um, I could totally see it taking a few months to talk me into doing it too. And it sounds like Phillips and Silver script really helped out a lot. Uh, they were definitely able to make it their own in, in part because they didn't take all of the Joker in, but the point remains. Oh, for sure. Uh, one huge challenge was the physical transformation. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix lost 52 pounds to play the role of Arthur Fleck. 
Wow. Um, one of the things Phillips and Phoenix uh, talked about was how skinny Arthur should be. Uh, Phillips asked Phoenix in June of that year when when he was going to start losing weight because he was at 177 pounds, and they were talking about him dropping to um, around 125, and they were supposed to start shooting as September. Um, Phillips uh, offered to give him a nutritionist, but uh, Phoenix said no because um, he had his own way of doing it. So to lose the, the 52 pounds uh, he needed to lose in two months, Joaquin Phoenix ate an apple per day for the whole summer, and he showed up for the reading at weight and fully submerged into the character. I, I honestly can't imagine the dedication it would take to do that. <laughs> I guess an apple a day does keep the doctor away. <laughs> you does. know, the more the more we do these deep dives into films, the more stories we hear about actors going above and beyond for the sake of the film. I'm thinking about like Daniel Craig, who filmed Spectre with a broken leg, or Keanu Reeves, who filmed The Matrix with a spinal injury. I, I would put starving yourself uh, for a summer uh, pretty high up on that list as well. It, in my <laughs> opinion, you just have to respect that. And apparently we're not the only wants to think so. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix won an Oscar for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role, a BAFTA Award for Best Leading Actor, a Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Male Actor in a Leading Role, and 67 other awards and nominations. <laughs> but let's talk about what else Phoenix did to make, the, make his role as the Joker more memorable. Yeah, and I will say, just as an aside, I mean, he won Best Actor for an, an, as an Academy Award from an Academy that almost never gives out Oscars to superhero films for any major uh, category. So think about that. Now, when it comes to Joker's character, uh, Phillips and Phoenix talked extensively about the story and the character, but not how Phoenix would play the character. Granted, Phoenix had a good idea about who the character was already and his motivations, but a big part of playing Arthur Fleck was personality and finding the story in the scene in the moment, which fit perfectly with the chaotic and unpredictable nature of the Joker. And Phoenix embraced this idea wholeheartedly, um, like that scene where he just got fired and he's leaving the dressing room and he comes back in and says, oh, I forgot to punch out. And literally, and he really punches the time clock off the wall. That was all Phoenix embracing the chaos and improvising. But he was not the only one. Phillips, uh, Silver, and Beats did this as well. The, the, the four of them would often meet at the beginning of the day and rewrite scenes to fit the story as it was unfolding. The erratic favor of the film just took over, and it took a director like Phillips who could shift and change as needed to get it done. Um, Phillips would often come up with these great lines on the spot, and while Phoenix often criticized him for it at the time, he would try and realize that it was a really good line, and this happened constantly. You can't really script that kind of performance, and the movie made room for good improvisation, and we saw that more than once in the film. In fact, uh, changing things up was something that Phillips and Phoenix would double down on. Uh, one thing that Joaquin Phoenix did during filming that actually fits the character was that he never did the same thing twice. If they wanted to do a new take, he'd just do a completely different performance in each take. Uh, Todd Phillips described him as the most nimble actor that he'd ever seen. Um, that Joaquin Phoenix just didn't get stuck in anything. And, and Phillips went on to say that one of the reasons editing the movie took so long was in great part because there are so many versions of the movie based off of Phoenix's 18 trillion performances. Often it took, it took was just a line of direction and it would change everything in, in, in a great way. You know, Nimble is right. Um... I have seen him in a variety of roles now, and he has yet to do anything less than stellar in his performances, even with them all being so different. 
What's more is that Joker really showcases the breadth and depth of Phoenix's repertoire as an actor. You know, the editor, Jeff Groth, talked about how much fun he had editing Joker, specifically because there was so much material to choose from. Uh, all I can say is that man must truly love editing movies. <laughs> because if I had to put a story together out of the plethora of pieces like he did, it would be very stressful for me. <laughs> but I understand that Phillips was there to help out too, so that probably made things easier. And I have to say that they edited the film brilliantly. You know, I haven't seen all of the takes, uh, but I do know that I really like what they went with. Yeah, the final take does exactly what it needs to. Uh, by the way, this approach even applied to the stunts. The scene where Arthur Fleck is running in his new suit all done up like the Joker and that taxi cab hits him and he rolls onto the hood and then he falls into that very awkward shoulder land. Um, Joaquin Phoenix did that stunt himself. Um, when you have a talent like Joaquin Phoenix, especially in a role like this, you just let him run with it and see where it goes. And that freely willing approach just made his performance better, whether it was drama, action, comedy, or whatever the scene needed. Uh, it's a brilliant performance, honestly. Do you have any other thoughts about uh, Joaquin Phoenix and what he brought to the film, Mike? I do, but first, having watched that scene where Joker gets hit by that cab and seeing how he fell, uh, that is impressive as hell. I mean, he just gets up and keeps running, and you know he is in a lot of pain from that land. <laughs> but to your question, uh, I have one thing to add. Uh, according to Joaquin Phoenix, uh, perfecting the Joker's laugh was actually the toughest part of playing the character. Considering some of the stuff we've been talking about, uh, him, him doing it, that, that's actually saying a lot. Uh, for instance, getting that laugh down was more difficult than starving himself for a summer. <laughs> Granted, it would be hard to get it down just right. I mean, there has to be a bit of menace and, and madman in the laugh without sounding cheesy. Uh, that that had to take some skill to invent and to perform. Oh, I, I can't imagine how many takes uh, Joaquin Phoenix probably did to get the character down as well as he did. But there's another big character involved in this film, and that's the setting of 1980s Gotham. Um, they intentionally set the film in the past, or at least uh, an alternate realities version of the past, with the idea that it would be separated from anything people were familiar with. Um, in Phillips's mind, it was New York in 1981, or at least how he remembered it from when he was 11, um, which was a very run down, broken city. And they thought that that was the perfect spot to tell the story in. Uh, it's not the, necessarily the real 1981 New York, but it was real to Phillips and, and that grounded the script. But they intentionally left out dates to leave when and where the movie was set vague. Uh, production designer Mark Freeberg had grown up on the Upper West Side of New York, and he remembered 1981 very well as he was going off to college at that time. It was rough, dysfunctional, and every city agency was on strike at some point. Uh, the garbage was everywhere, and the city agencies weren't on strike, were corrupt. Um, it was a, a time when the social contract felt like it was coming apart, really. And the producers wanted the city, which is a character unto itself in the movie, to feel on the ragged edge. Uh, but New York is also a city uh, of realms and, and they wanted there to be a distinction in the places where Arthur went from his home to his work, uh, to the comedy club, the bank and so on, to show the different sides of the city. Uh, beyond the differences in architecture in the various places, one of the ways they made the distinction was the garbage. Not just what kind of garbage, but you'll notice that there's garbage all over, well, there's garbage all over. The wealthy neighborhoods were garbage free while the poor lived in squalor, of course. Ultimately, Gotham in the movie was a riff on both New York and the Gotham of the comics being a city of bridges and islands. It's not really the Gotham of the comics, as the locations are sometimes very different, but it's a familiar enough to feel like Gotham. But it leans very heavily into the New York uh, setting, probably echoing Taxi Driver a bit. 
That is interesting. And and I think it's one of the things that makes the city feel alive and lived in. Like it's fully fleshed out. Not many people put so much effort into the city where the story takes place in. Uh, but, but I wish they would. In this particular case, as you pointed out before, it's all essential to Arthur's journey to becoming the Joker. Oh, exactly. Also, as a little side trivia note, there actually is a map of Gotham in the subway station with the transit routes on it. But my favorite part of that map is that there is, I kid you not, a district on the map called Otisburg. If you're a fan of the original Richard Donner Superman film like I am, it's worth a pretty large chuckle. Ned Beatty's character in that film begs Lex Luthor to give him a small town to run called Otisburg. I can't help but hear Gene Hackman screaming, Otisburg! I, I have no idea if that's an intentional nod to Superman or not, but I love that there is an Otisburg in Gotham. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. And I too cannot hear or read Otisburg without hearing Hackman's irritated Lex Luthor voice either. <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. I mean, if the reference is intentional, it's an awesome tip of the hat and I admire them for it. But let's talk about the other influences, shall we? Ah, uh, it sounds like a great idea, Steve. Uh, one thing that everyone has to point out about the Joker and Phillips and Silver scripts are some very obvious influences on the story and characters. In particular, folks want to mention two Martin Scorsese classic character studies in Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy, both of which star Robert De Niro. In fact, Scorsese was actually on board as a producer, as you pointed out at one point. Uh, but anyway, let's talk about some things that are clearly taken right from those films. First, let's compare Joker to The King of Comedy. In The King of Comedy, the main character, Rupert Pupkin, played by De Niro, is a mentally ill comedian with aspirations of great fame, but is still trying to launch his career. Uh, Rupert is also obsessed with going on a talk show hosted by Jerry Langford. Uh, Rupert believes this opportunity will be his big break. Based just on that very generic description, Arthur Fleck and Rupert Pupkin uh, have a lot in common. Uh, but the story diverges quite a bit from each other after that. Uh, for instance, Rupert actually pursued an appearance on the Jerry Langford show over and over and was rejected by everyone on down the line, including Langford himself. He went on to kidnap Langford and use it as leverage to get on the show, of course, hosted by someone else. In Joker, Arthur is noticed by the Murray Franklin show and then pursued by them to have on the show. And then Joker used that as his big moment. If you ask me, the comparison is very loose at best. And Phillips clearly brought something new there. And, and in my opinion, most of that could have just as easily been derived uh, from the killing joke as it could have the king of comedy. But I mean, what do you think, Steve? Oh, that's totally fair. I mean, I regret that I have not seen the King of Comedy as of this recording. A lot of it is just it's not available for streaming right now, and that's usually how I watch things. But I I've tried to do some secondary research on it, including watching trailers and video clips. So I'll comment with what I am familiar with, which is admittedly a lot of very surface elements. So if I'm wrong on anything, I hope our audience will hit us up and correct us on that. But um, going on a purely surface take, I think it was no accident that Robert De Niro was cast as the late night host that pushes Arthur past his breaking point. I mean, Joker is a movie that wears its love for Scorsese on its sleeve. And I don't see how you can get more obvious about it than having uh, Arthur's tormentor being played by Travis Bickle himself <laughs> or Pupkin in the case of King of Comedy. Um, De Niro's presence is the anchor that I think connects Joker directly to the movies that inspired it. Interestingly enough, um, De Niro in this film uh, plays much the same kind of role as Jerry Lewis did in King of Comedy. Um, there are a number of visual elements that um, Phillips uh, lifts from King of Comedy as well. I mean, Phoenix's red suit echoes the suit that De Niro wears in King of Comedy. 
uh, the late night set and the format of the show is very similar between the two films. And I'll also note that one of the posters for King of Comedy is really telling. It shows two playing cards and Travis Pupkin is portrayed as the Joker. You can't make this stuff up. You know, I saw that poster too. And honestly, I was shocked. Um, I mean, that poster had to be an inspiration beyond the story connections. I mean, that was both of our immediate thoughts when we saw it. I mean, maybe I'm projecting here, but seeing Rupert Pupkin on the Joker card right next to the word Joker <laughs> had to catch yeah. Philip's eye and maybe even inspired his using the film as an influence on the script. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, he might have looked at the poster and even started asking questions like, what if Rupert Pupkin became the Joker? But um, the other point that I find interesting is that Pupkin is portrayed as delusional, imagining these scenes that don't exist and only take place in his mind. Um, Arthur Fleck is similarly delusional. I mean, imagining an ideal life for himself. And we eventually see that none of it really happened. Uh, their motivations are also very similar with each of them trying to break out into comedy and being dismissed for their trouble. Uh, so it's easy to see where this film had an impact on Phillips. The evidence is definitely there for sure. And and not that Phillips is trying to deny it at all, uh, but there is yeah. no denying the proof. Uh, so the next big influence was Taxi Driver. And honestly, the connections to this film and Joker are as generic to the connections with the last film and Joker. But we'll go over them nonetheless, as the few similarities were all people could talk about initially, at least in my little corner of the world. Uh, Travis Bickle and Arthur Fleck do have a couple things in common, however. Both comment on how crazy the world is getting and how awful people are to each other, uh, to use Arthur's words. Uh, granted, with Bickle, it was focused on crime in particular, uh, but both were frustrated by this. Both characters also keep a diary uh, for, for both their thoughts and their aphorisms. Though in Arthur's case, those sayings uh, were dark and twisted, like, I hope my death makes more sense than my life, sense being spelled C-E-N-T-S. And with Bickle's stuff, it at least had a little bit of light to it, you know, uh, with, you know, you're only as healthy as you feel. Uh, but both Bickle and Fleck uh, also acquired a gun through illegal means. Uh, but there again, that was different. Uh, Travis Bickle sought out a gun and Arthur Fleck was just given the gun by Randall, a co-worker. Last but not least, the similarity I could come across was that both Arthur and Travis are both heralded as heroes for what they did. For the Joker, it was the poor and disenfranchised, the, the neglected and abused that praised him. And with Travis Bickle, it was the press who lifted him up for his killing spree because they were all criminals. So again, there is an influence there. But Joker is nothing like this film, and neither is the King of Comedy, other than they are all character studies. But again, that is just my, well, I was going to say two cents but that was at least a buck and a quarter. <laughs> so so what do you think, Steve? I agree with all those points. I mean, including that uh, this film definitely uh, strikes out on its own to a certain extent. Um, honestly, though, there's so much stuff that comes straight out of Taxi Driver. Uh, some of it is the surface elements, like the gradual mental decline of its protagonist until he snaps and completely changes. But I also think it's very obvious that Todd Phillips loved the way that the movie was shot. If you look at the scenes of Phoenix's Joker in the backseat of the car, it looks very much like the way Track Taxi Driver was shot. Um, the way that Gotham is treated as a character, the shots of the city, and the way the, the city feels alive at night. Uh, Taxi Driver did those kinds of things as well. Um, both films have that seedy and period look to them, though Joker is set 10 years after Taxi Driver came out. Both those films uh, deal with romantic obsession and how it can break an already unstable person. Uh, the Flick character draws more from King of Comedy, I think, but the stylistic elements and the portrayal of setting is very much Taxi Driver. 
you bring up a great point about the camera work and Taxi Driver being similar. I I would say that there's also some of that camera work in King of Comedy. I mean, uh, but but both are derived from the same director who inspired Phillips. So, I mean, that that's a good catch. And honestly, I think it shows how much Philip has gleaned as a Scorsese fan. Oh, uh, for sure. I mean, Philip is, is definitely a filmmaker of the Scorsese school, and he wears that influence as a badge of honor. That he does. Uh, but if we can transition into the character study the movie is all about. Um, I don't know about you, but that opening scene, well, I guess scenes, uh, just just killed me the first several times I watched it. I mean, uh, in, in the beginning there, you see Arthur sitting at his vanity and, and putting on his clown makeup for his carnival character. Uh, you see him stop putting on his makeup in the middle like like there's some frustration there and then he forces his face into happy and sad expression with his fingers and then he fish hooks himself from both sides until tears run down his face as if that's that's what he had to do to feel something i mean anything uh, my guess is that he is numb at this point because he's still on medication psych meds were terrible back then and very sedating but then you follow up that with those kids bullying him and beating him just for the fun of it. And my heart is just broken. Uh, I, it, it wasn't until about my fifth or sixth time through the film that I was finally able to watch that opening and not feel both utterly defeated inside and angry at those kids and empathy for Arthur. You know, producer Bradley Cooper talked about how they wanted to take a chaotic agent of mayhem like the Joker and see what happens when they humanize him and see what could possibly be the causes of his behavior. Well, that opening scene definitely humanizes him and puts him in a sympathetic light, especially when you combine that with the scene on the bus where the kid sees that Arthur is sad and having someone actually notice him makes him happy for a minute until the kid's mother tells him to quit bothering her kid. Then Arthur's pseudo-Dobler effect, his uncontrollable laughing or crying, kicks in. And we see that the laughter comes from being in uncomfortable situations, like how that kid's mother just made him feel. Or sitting in the office with his uh, co-worker who doesn't listen to him when he's on the subway. And those businessmen are harassing the woman. That puts the whole... that just puts a whole new light on Joker as a character and makes you think about his laughing uh, all the time in a whole new way. I mean, what do you think about humanizing a villain like this? Uh, does it take away from the terror he evokes or add to it? And lastly, does this humanizing of the character affect how you see the Joker in a sympathetic way or knowing the horrors he will commit? Are you callous to his suffering? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, my feelings on this version of Joker are complicated for a number of reasons. One main one is that, as you know well, I really cannot stand the Joker as a character in the majority of his portrayals. In most of those stories, he is completely unhinged and pure evil, committing atrocities for the fun of it or out of his crazy obsession with Batman. He's the embodiment of chaotic evil, and we see something close to that by the end of this film. I can't sympathize with that version of the character in any way. I, I just don't care what the writers come up with to convince me otherwise. He's crossed too many lines for me to ever see him in a positive light. Whatever he was before, the Joker is a monster and he is not redeemable. That having been said, I don't look at Arthur Fleck as the Joker exactly. The Joker is just an identity that Fleck wears to act out against society. And as we've talked about, Phillips is not writing the Joker. He's writing his own version of the Travis Bickle, Rupert Pupkin character and putting him in a clown suit. Um, I see Arthur Fleck as his own character who just happens to adopt elements of the comic book Joker, if that makes sense. Uh, looking at him in that light, I can look at this Joker a bit differently. Uh, going purely on what's shown in this movie, I can sympathize with what Fleck suffers through, and I can understand why he'd want to lash out, even if I don't think it justifies the, what he does. 
And I think it's even possible to not feel bad for certain people that he kills, uh, like the thugs who assaulted him, or, you know, even Robert De Niro's character. But in the end, I can't root for what he does, however much I may hate what made Fleck into the Joker. Now, in fairness, I will say that the writers, including Todd Phillips, as well as Joaquin Phoenix as an actor, probably do as well as anyone could do to try to turn me around on a psychotic mass murder like the Joker. It's bold, and it's a huge risk, and I can totally respect that. Um, I think Phoenix's performance is outstanding and award-worthy, and he gets exactly what this film was aiming for. Um, I respect the work that was done here by all involved in trying to make this character sympathetic, because they're all very good. But I'm just not the audience for this movie, this character, or this kind of take. And really, I'm not who this movie is trying to convince anyway, and that's perfectly fine. As it is, I'm cool with letting the people this movie is aiming for have their Joker movie. Uh, that's totally fair and respectable position, Steve. Um, I guess by that description, as a big Joker fan and a big Scorsese and character study fan, I'm exactly who they were aiming for. And I love the Joker movie. Oh, absolutely you are. Totally agree. Uh, you, you have a real fascination with monsters and what drives people down to the dark path. And I think this movie appeals to that very well. Uh, do you want to get a bit more into that and how it comes off in this film? Sure, Steve. Uh, writer Scott Silver and Todd Phillips talked a lot about ho who the Joker would be and what his thing was. They discussed why he would wear makeup and, and why he would have that laugh and started reading about narcissism and ego and things they felt fit into their version of the Joker. And it came out like this. Joker is a narcissist. But in their minds, he's an egoless narcissist. The ego is actually Arthur trying to control the wild horse that is the Joker by wearing a happy face mask. Like you see when his boss is willing to believe that Arthur stole the shop owner's sign and uh, left, even though he had no idea why he would do that. But at the same time, despite the fact that Arthur is covered in bruises and everyone has heard about it, his boss wouldn't believe that the kids jumped him and destroyed the sign on his face. You can see the anger starting to build in his eyes, but he puts on his happy face mask and smiles. Contrast this with the wild horse of the Joker within Arthur, which is pure id. And Scott Silver and Todd Phillips thought about what happens when a person goes through their life wearing a mask, which a lot of people do when they pretend to be a certain way around others. And Arthur is very much controlled, just showing glimpses of who he is underneath. Like when Arthur violently uh, freaked out in the alleyway after talking to his boss, and especially after he got fired for bringing the gun to the children's hospital and you see him smash that phone booth window with his head. Uh, but ultimately, Arthur's journey is about what happens when you take off that mask, which is ironic because the Joker wears makeup. Uh, but you see what I mean. It's about what happens when the pretense is removed and Arthur drifts away and starts living as the shadow, a.k.a. the Joker. You see the two halves of him struggling less and less as the film goes on. I think one of the better scenes that show how fluidly the personalities can change was when he was in his apartment after he went to the comedy club. Um as a quick note, I love this as a guy who studied serial killers. <laughs> uh, the club was called Pogo's, which just happens to be the name of the clown persona of serial killer John Wayne Gacy. That was no accident, I'm sure. <laughs> but back to what I was saying. Uh, while he was at the club back and back in his apartment, uh, with his right hand, he writes the worst part about having a mental illness is, and then back at home with his left hand, he writes, everyone expects you to act like you don't. And he even draws a smiley face in the O and don't. Handedness is something that can often come with cases of DID. And this scene here just screams that's what's going on with Arthur and the Joker persona. 
Uh, that's a really interesting take. Um, it is true that the change of appearance can change the way a character behaves. Um, there's an old uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons about uh, what happens when uh, someone puts on different clothes and we see drastic behavioral changes. Um, I'm playing on this idea a little bit myself in our D&D campaign because um, my character Mortise just gained the ability to cast illusions on herself at will. So um, I'm exploring what that would do to her in the game. It's a really interesting uh, and compelling idea when you dive into how appearance affects identity and how a character sees himself or herself. But when you have someone like Arthur Fleck, uh, who already has identity issues and who has a tenuous grasp of reality at best, taking on a new identity completely breaks him. Um, by the end, he doesn't want to be Arthur at all, and who could blame him, really? I mean, Arthur was spat on, kicked down, and treated as a joke by everyone in his life. So he reinvents himself as this deranged killer clown, wearing a mask that is both his idealized self and the mask he wears to lash out at the society that rejected him. So the ability that frees Arthur to be what he wants to be also creates a monster. Appearances can make a big difference. Uh, you know, but when our appearances are in as much contrast with what we feel on the inside as it was in the case of Arthur Fleck, who only has negative thoughts, the masks we wear in public are fragile and temporary things that only add nitroglycerin to the explosion to come. True. And that leads into an interesting question. I mean, which persona is really the mask? Uh, is it Arthur Fleck, who's trying desperately to fit in a society that doesn't want him? And it's the Joker that's the real self? Or is the Joker the mask that Arthur Fleck wears to indulge in his violent fantasies? Where does Arthur begin and the Joker end? Um, I'll be honest, I don't know that there's a clear answer to that question, but it's something to think about. I suppose that I want to lean on the things that Arthur said about himself to answer that. Um, he says that his laugh isn't a condition like he's been told it was. In truth, the laugh was the real him trying to come out. Um, he says that he feels a lot better now that he's off his medication. And last but not least, after Joker fully comes to the surface, he says to his uh, worker that before he was never really sure if he existed at all, but now he does and people are starting to notice. Uh, I, I take those things to mean that the Joker is the real person and Arthur Fleck is the mask. Hmm. Uh, that's a pretty solid take. I mean, it might be that Arthur Fleck is who he tries to be because he thinks is what society expects, but... Maybe the Joker was always deep down underneath that, lurking beneath, deep within his psyche and waiting to explode at just the right moment. Who knows? Nicely said. Um, I believe Arthur is exactly what he believes the world wants to see, which is part of the reason he is so frustrated with it not working. He's like, this is what you guys say you want. Here it is, and you're rejecting it. You know, like his boss told him, people don't like him, and they think he's weird, and he doesn't know what to do to change that. Joker is part of him giving up the facade that is partially causing that internal struggle. You know, that scene in the bathroom after Arthur kills those three Wayne Enterprise employees, and he does that dance... That scene is really the emergence of the Joker persona. There, there is confidence in, in him and, and, and grace in his movements. I'm reminded of when Arthur was first playing with the gun Randall had given him at work. He was tantalized by it, and you saw a change in him the second he actually picked up the gun in his hand. He started doing a low-key, seductive type of dance. You could tell. He felt confident, assured, and, and had a little bit of like a swagger to him. He looked happy, even for just a moment, as he was holding that gun. This 
this is a huge contrast to his his feelings of helplessness, uh, being miserable and unnoticed without it. On the Murray Show, Joker talks about how people only care about the deaths of the three Wayne Enterprise employees because Thomas Wayne talked about them. If it had been him lying there on the side of the street, they all would have ignored him and walked on by. The fact that he dances at that moment he took the gun in a sexy way is important, too, because the connection between this freedom the Joker persona uh, gives him and, and his libido comes up again later. We saw glimpses of this more charismatic, confident, and graceful persona in Arthur before, like catching the elevator uh, door with his foot all smooth-like for, for Sophie and her son, or, or how he dances as his clown character, Carnival. Uh, there is music in him that he keeps hidden most of the time. That dance in the bathroom after killing those men is the first time Arthur just lets go of the mask. Not completely, mind you, but there is clearly a transformation in him through that dance. It must have felt like breathing for the first time, like like experiencing the world through his senses that he had never done so fully before. In the newness of this freedom, the Joker danced and Arthur at last felt peace. And notice that the first thing he did after killing those men and doing that dance was go straight to Sophie's apartment with all kinds of bravado and just kisses her when she opens the door. Uh, he had a good chance of getting a fist in the mouth for doing that. <laughs> but luckily it worked out for him. Uh, but my point is that this is a huge shift from trying to hold back the Joker to letting the wild horse ride. You see him do a version of that dance in the bathroom when he was behind the curtain at the, as Murray was introducing him. You know, Murray showed that humiliating clip to mock Arthur once again and the rage boiled up in him. I mean, you can see him. He's standing there with, you know, with his arms crossed, smoking that cigarette. You could just see the rage uh, building in him right there uh, behind the stage and and feeling that again the Joker of course comes out and you can see it in that strange dance he does before he goes out onto the stage he is clearly becoming Joker even directly references Murray mocking him when he says that Murray's is awful oh I definitely see the journey of the character and the way uh, for Phoenix portrays the character on screen I mean he starts off as this very worn down pitiful character who's definitely not right in the head at the same time, he's struggling to keep a grasp on reality, but when he does, reality tends to kick him in the head. Uh, when he tells the psychologist, all I have are negative thoughts, it's a moment of deep despair, and Phoenix sells it perfectly, but oddly, it's Arthur's retreat and break from reality that causes him to function better and seem more comfortable in his own clown shoes. Um, I think this is also where uh, Phoenix seems to have more fun in the role, embracing the randomness of the character. It is very much like a dance, as you say, which I guess is why Phillips uh, wants uh, wanted to do the sequel as a musical. Uh, but I get ahead of myself. Uh, for for the record, um, I heard recently that the musical thing was an exaggerated rumor. Um, hmm. But I suppose we won't find out till we see it. Actually, um, so so there's there's one more thing actually that that I wanted to bring up, and that is the ending. Um, I freaking love the ending and and believe it actually to be the most Joker thing about the movie. Um, in short, uh, Joker is not a reliable narrator or storyteller. I mean, in the comics, you can never take his version of events at face value because the details will change in his own mind as he constantly evolves. <laughs> in the film, you're left wondering how much was real and how much wasn't. I mean, by the ending there, it could arguably be said that Arthur Fleck never left Arkham Asylum, and everything we'd seen in the movie up to that point was just going on in his head. Uh, you know, that was the joke he didn't think the nurse would get. At the same time, he, he clearly butchers the nurse, and how everyone freaks out, you kind of wonder if the Joker had already been out killing already. I mean, What's your take on the ending, Steve? 
Well, you're totally right about the Joker being a, an unreliable narrator. I mean, how many different origin stories has the Joker himself told about himself? <laughs> and and how many of them have he has been totally, um, shall we say, believable and realistic in his own mind? Um, but um, to get to your question, I, I preface this by saying anything at all could have happened. Um, we are seeing the world through the eyes of a delusional psychotic. And who knows what reality actually is to someone like that? Um, I do think Joker did go on his rampage, though, and I do think he incited the mob violence and all the rest of that. It might not have happened exactly the way we see it on screen, and there may be details that didn't happen. I mean, maybe the Waynes were never even involved with anything we saw, for example. But regardless of what the truth is, I, I think by the end, Arthur Fleck is gone, and the only thing left of him is the Joker. He's out there killing people now. He's finally crossed the line from a hopeless guy who might have been saved into a monster who's lost in madness, delusion, and murder. It ends the way it needs to. And as much as Joker thinks he's embracing comedy, the ending can only be described as tragedy. I'm, 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 I'm under the impression that the Joker believes that the, the ridiculousness of the, of the barrage of horrid things that have happened to him and continue to happen to him is just life. You know, like the Frank Sinatra song says throughout the movie, uh, that that he's reached the point where where there is just nothing left to do but laugh. At the same time, I hear him saying that his life is a comedy in the vein of like the Divine Comedy, which is hardly a humorous tale. Uh, not that I think Fleck ever read the Divine Comedy, but but the use of the word is what I mean. Yeah, I, now I personally I doubt that he read it either. I mean, as you say, it's not a comedy at all. But I think the Divine Comedy does have some relevance when seen in a certain way. I mean, you could see Joker as Arthur Fleck gradually descending into hell. Um, granted, the context of the two stories are completely different, but it's an interesting connection. It is. And and I'm actually, I think I'm going to have to do some research on the comedy itself. Has Dante Alighieri used it? And and see if there isn't more to that, uh, you know, like in, in context of other writings or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. But that but that about wraps up our discussion on the episode. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.